There are many things in this world that have a great potential to divide us. Race issues, religious issues, political issues and parties, just to mention a few. Certainly the early church was not immune to these issues. There were political issues that divided the Jews and Gentiles as well. For example, the Jews had been expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius and had just begun returning to Rome a few years earlier than the writing of the Book of Romans. Acts chapter 18 and 1 and 2 refer to this event. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So here was this great dispersion that took place because Claudius banned all Jews from Rome, saw them as detrimental to the city and ultimately detrimental to the government at Rome. Certainly those political thoughts were strong among the people at Rome. There were religious and ethnic issues that divided the Jew and Gentile as well. There had been centuries of animosity and separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus had begun to bridge some of those differences in his earthly ministry. And in the book of John, we have an account on one occasion of Jesus uh, interacting with a woman at a well. We read this in John chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was just the way it was. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. And uh, that is to be understood in its absolute sense. Uh, they wouldn't do commerce together. Uh, they wouldn't dwell together. They wouldn't have interaction. And she's wondering why his, he is even talking to her. Why would you talk to me? Two strikes. I'm a woman and I am a Samaritan. Though Jesus had begun to build bridges, there was still a long way to go. We find early on in the book of Acts that the Christians were taking the word of God to the Jews only. Acts 11.19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So they weren't even seeking to evangelize the Gentiles at this point, for all the early Christians were, were Jewish converts. And they weren't even speaking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now that division had to be overcome. Things had to change. Paul said in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So certainly Paul understood the need of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul's ministry was primary to the Gentiles. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, it says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him, that is Christ, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he understood that God had called him with the primary responsibility and purpose to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Interesting, knowing of Paul's Jewish background and his training and his experience. But you see, all that was necessary in this transition of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In our text, Paul is addressing the Gentiles as well. Notice Romans eleven thirteen. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Now there is a zeroing in on those that are not Jewish. He's been talking about the Jews. He's been talking about how not every single descendant of Abraham, physical descendant, was a part of the elect, uh, but one uh, ultimately had to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to qualify for the promises of God. As I said last week, we were going to take a, a doctrinal approach to chapter 11, which we did. And the first 11 chapters of Romans are primarily doctrinal in nature. The last four are practical. Uh, in some ways, I hate that distinction because doctrine is practical. That's the foundation of the practice. But if we can divide the book in that way, the first 11 chapters are um, doctrinal, 12 through 16 are more practical. For example, if you look at Romans eleven twenty four, it says, for if you who were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature, it tells them that they are not to be wise in their own conceit. They're not to be wise in their own conceit. Paul builds upon that in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, where he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own Sight. So Paul is addressing the Gentiles now, and he's addressing them in a very practical way. And that is, he's addressing how they are to interact with the Jewish people, how they are to learn to associate with them. And what we have in Romans chapter 11 is a call for the Gentiles to manifest humility in associating with the Jewish people. A call for the Gentiles to have humility 
in associating with the Jewish people. And of course, we're all Gentiles this morning, and uh, we certainly can apply this to the Jewish people and far beyond. The point is of having humility in associating with the rest of God's people. A threefold call to humility. The first is a call to humility. Do not be arrogant towards the Jewish people, but remember your indebtedness to them. Do not be arrogant towards the Jewish people, but remember your indebtedness to them. Verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. To be arrogant in this usage of the word is to leave, have a sense of superiority. And it is manifested or demonstrated in the putting of other people down. It is to make negative comparisons to others. It is a self-exaltation at the expense of others. We all know people who put other people down in order to make themselves look good. And Paul is saying to the, Jew, to the Gentiles, you are not to be putting the Jewish people down. We're not to be arrogant in relating to the Jewish people, to boast uh, in uh, putting them down, to exalt ourselves as one of deserving more value or worth. Rather than to put them down, it says we're to remember that we are greatly indebted to the Jewish people. Look at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember. It is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Last week we looked at this whole concept of the Gentiles being grafted in to the, the Jewish tree uh, and being able to partake in the promises of God, to be considered sons of Abraham by faith. And so there's this indebtedness to the Jewish people. All of the Old Testament promises, all of the heritage that uh, is manifest uh, among the Jewish people, we have an opportunity to partake in. And so we are, it says, indebted to the Jewish people, certainly Christ came from the lineage of Abraham. Abraham was told that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. We are not to lose sight of all that uh, has been given to us through the Jewish people. Notice how the Gentiles' indebtedness to the Jewish people is built upon and further applied in Romans 15. If you would keep your finger here and turn to Romans 15. I want to demonstrate this morning how we have the doctrinal foundation and then moving on we have this application that comes out of the doctrinal formation. Romans chapter 15 starting verse 26. Talking about how Macedonia and Achaia had been given monies for the sake of the poor Jews. Romans 15, 26. For Macedonia and Achaia had been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And now these words. And indeed they owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Here's this aspect of indebtedness. And Paul says, as Gentiles, we are indebted to the Jewish people spiritually. Should we not use our monies to help the Jewish people materially? For the greater indebtedness is the spiritual indebtedness. The lesser is of material needs and goods. So Paul, saying that we are indebted to the Jewish people spiritually, now there are these poor saints in Jerusalem. Goes back to in uh, uh, Rome, uh, when the uh, Christians were having all things in common, they sold everything they had. Then they had the dispersion of being kicked out of Rome, and they came back to nothing. They came back in absolute poverty. Paul says, we owe it to them. We are spiritually indebted. So the application. It is always spiritually helpful and humbling to remember our indebtedness to others. To remember how our coming to faith isn't in a vacuum. It's it's not in isolation. There have always been people that are sacrificing, people that are giving, people that are sharing, people that are making it possible for other people to hear the word of God, to be instructed, to be taught, uh, who have built this building, who have provided us the Bibles that we have, that have provided us with all the spiritual blessings. It is important that we do not lose sight, that we stand on the shoulders of others. And not only do we stand on the shoulders of others, but many times people of other nationalities, peoples of other backgrounds, peoples of other ethnicity. We think of the Great Reformation. Think of Martin Luther, a German. We think of John Calvin, a Frenchman. We think of how God has used these individuals. We think of the Puritans in the uh, early establishment of America who were from England, (coughs) having made their way through uh, Holland because they were were, uh, fleeing the persecution in England, first went to Holland, then ultimately came to America. So here are these ethnic groups that we ourselves are indebted to. It's humbling to remember our roots, as it were. As Paul is saying, remember that you aren't supporting the root. The root is supporting you. Number two, a call to humility. Do not become proud of your faith, but remember the grace of God. Do not become proud of your faith, but remember the grace of God. Notice verses 19 and 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Now the admonition, so... Do not become proud, but fear. The first admonition was, don't be arrogant. The second is, don't become proud, but fear. 
It was indeed God's plan that the Jews would be cut off and the Gentiles would be grafted in. Romans 11:19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20. That is true. The assumption is right. God had done a work among the Gentiles that was profound. And the very purpose that we saw last week of cutting off the Jewish people was so that these Gentiles could be grafted in. But we're to remember that our standing with God is by grace through faith. Verse 20. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Therefore, we're not to be proud of our being accepted, but rather fear that we won't be accepted. Verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. There is no confidence that we have in ourselves. There is no reason for God to graft us in to the people of God at all. We only have a standing with God through faith. We have no greater claim upon Christ than the Jewish people had. Romans 11, 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. We have no particular grounds for our expecting God's grace to be shown to us. There are numerous Christians that stumble at the same stumbling block that the Jewish people did. That is, just as the Jews thought that because their ancestors had a relationship with God, it guaranteed that they would have a relationship with God. There is a whole branch of theological Protestant persuasion that teaches a covenantal relationship between parents and child that if God elects the parent, then he's going to elect the child. There is no ground for that in the word of God at all. It's the same stumbling block that the Jews had. Uh, there is no guarantee that our children are going to experience the salvific work of God. So when they do, we ought to rejoice and we ought to give thanks. It certainly is not a, a time for us to puff out our chests. In fact, what we ought to do is be afraid that our children are not going to experience the grace of God. It really should send chills down our spine when a newborn is brought into this world. <laughs> and we agonize before God and we pray for their salvation. And we rejoice when they come to faith. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, we take it for granted when our children are saved. We never should. We, we wonder if God is doing a work because the only people we say we're being saved are our children. It's every bit of a miracle that our children are saved as it is the person that's across the globe. 
It's every bit the work of the grace of God when our child comes to faith as it is the person who lives in the most abhorrent situation that life can imagine. Never take God's grace for granted. Never get to the place where you say, we deserve this. God owes it to this. That we can begin to take pride in our salvation and the salvation of our children. It's the grace of God. It is the goodness of God. Our standing is only ever by grace. We must guard against grace moving to a sense of merit. To think that somehow we deserve to be saved or our children deserve to be saved. That there is some quality that distinguishes us from others. We have nothing to boast in. Thirdly, a call to humility. Don't think yourself smarter than what you are. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Again, there is a doctrinal foundation to the application that I read early in Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He uses that phrase, and now in Romans 12, he is going to unpack it in a number of different ways. First, haughtiness. Haughtiness. Then, an unwillingness to associate with others. And a willingness to associate with others, but rather live in harmony. So, what is the remedy to being wise in our own eyes? How can we guard our hearts against being wise in our own eyes? Well, number one, closely associated with the point just before us, never lose sight of God's grace in saving you. How not to be wise? Never lose sight of God's grace in saving you. Look at Romans eleven twenty-eight through 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. As God looked upon us, we were disobedient people. When the children of Israel were being prepared to enter the promised land, God said, when you enter the promised land, don't think because of your righteousness or your goodness that I have chosen you. He says it is not. Don't think it's because of our goodness, our righteousness, that God has chosen us for salvation. There is no reason in ourselves for God to choose us. The impetus, the initiative rests in the perfect mind and will of God. It's what God chooses to do with us is the reason that he chose us. But there is nothing 
innate in us. There is no reason for us to feel superior to feel superior to one who has not been chosen. Rather than to speak of our wisdom, we're to marvel and give thanks to God for his wisdom. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We are to rejoice in what he does. His goodness, his grace, his wisdom, his riches. We are never to lose sight of the mystery surrounding God saving us. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. The word of God doesn't tell us why he chooses whom he does. It tells us why he does not choose whom he does. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone would boast. Lest anyone would become proud. Lest anyone would be arrogant. Unless anyone would, would think that there is reason for God to choose me. And for a lot of people, they say it's faith. God know, knew that I would have faith. No, no, there is no reason for God to have chosen whom he chose. He doesn't choose us based on our faith. We have faith because he chose us. And we're just to marvel at God's wisdom. And we are to simply say that his ways are beyond our understanding. We don't know why we can't explain it. We have to accept it as such. Our wisdom is to understand our ignorance. Our wisdom is to understand how far God's wisdom goes beyond our own. So, all glory belongs to God for our salvation. Notice verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, and to him. Everything that we have comes from God, including our physical life. And just as dependent as we are on our physical life, so too we are equally dependent upon him for our spiritual life. No one brought themselves into this world physically. And no one brings themselves into a relationship with God spiritually. That's why the Bible refers to us as being a new creation. The same passivity in God creating us is the same passivity in God making us new in Jesus Christ. The other analogy is being born again. To be born again. Just as we had no impetus in our being brought into this earth, 
Just as we were passive in our coming into life, so too we are passive in our coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one who granted us life, physically and spiritually. He is the one who brings us into a unique and purposeful relationship to him. To him belongs all the glory, the honor, and the praise. All things are from him, says in verse 36. All things are through him, by the power of Jesus Christ. We know that John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He made it all. He has done it all in saving us from beginning to end. And not only are all things from him and through him, but all things are to him, meaning that we are indebted to Jesus Christ. And now that we are a new creation, it is our responsibility and duty to live for him. Worthy, O Lord, are you to receive honor and glory and blessing. For you have created all things. By thy pleasure they are created. Thou art worthy, O Lord. We all stand on that same footing of grace. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The doctrine of election should produce within us a tremendous sense of humility and gratitude and thanksgiving. The doctrine of election teaches us that there's nothing different about us than the world around us. It's the goodness and grace of God. The greatest application to the doctrine of election is that there is no reason to boast, no reason to be proud, no reason to be arrogant, we can't look down our nose at a single person who isn't saved. We can't look and say, how stupid. How sad. Don't be wise in your own eyes. We're saved not because we're smarter. We're saved because we're recipients of grace. And certainly, as the people of God, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no ground to feel, superior, to feel superior to another. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians says... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
for we are all one in Christ. That doctrinal truth that God has brought us together, and he has, and we will be together forever in his presence. People from every tongue and tribe and people and nation are going to worship together. And there isn't going to be an Hispanic church, and there isn't going to be a Jewish church, and there isn't going to be a, a Greek church. There is one people of God that are going to be worshiping God together forever and ever. And we're to prepare for that great day by worshiping together with the people of God now, with no distinction. So we must guard against arrogance in our response to people of other nationalities. We need to welcome, embrace, associate, and acknowledge as full brothers and sisters in Christ, people from whatever national background they have. We must guard against arrogance in our response to new converts. As we're gonna see in, in Romans where it says, receive those that are weak in faith, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't argue over things that don't matter. The Jewish traditions that the Gentiles didn't hold to were a source of contention. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. One doesn't have to grow up with all the trappings in order to be acceptable. We must guard against our arrogance in dealing with the peoples of this world. I think most importantly for us, we must guard ourselves against the concept of a Christian nation. I hear it time and time again, we are a Christian nation. The majority of people in this nation do not profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not a Christian nation by heritage, any more than the Jewish people were. We're not a Christian nation because of who founded us. We are a Christian nation when we know the Lord Jesus Christ and we become a part of him. We have to guard against a superiority of thinking that other nations are not Christian nations. That somehow we are unique. We're the apple of God's eye. We are America. And all these other countries, although some of them have more Christians than America, that they are second rate. That, that God deals with them and looks at them differently. And certainly we should look at and we should deal with them differently. We need to have, we think, a national pride that distinguishes us from all the other nations on the face of this earth. Don't get this wrong. I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad to be free. I'm glad for the blessings we have, and many of them because of our Christian ancestors. But I'm saying that it is easy to ostracize 
and to look down our nose at other people, groups, and nations. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just the Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' day. It's black and white today. It's Hispanic today. It's Indian today. It's African today. Don't have confidence in being an American. Have confidence in a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. And can I go a step further and say that we have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ than in any other reason. I have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ than someone of the same skin tone. I have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ than someone who lives in this country. I have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ than someone of a different economical background. I have more in common with my brother and sister in Christ than I do with people of the same political party. There is no greater foundation for unity than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not our socio-economical similarities. It is the body of Christ. Let us have humility towards all of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, welcoming them, associating with them, and marveling in God's grace to them and to us in saving them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to take a passage such as this and to take it to heart. For we know that there are many, many forces at work. And the message of the scripture is so, so different than the message of this world. It's why the very next chapter begins with, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, there are so many forces at work politically, economically, sociologically, that want to bring division, that, that want to bring arrogance, that want to communicate superiority over another group, another entity. Oh Lord, may we see ourselves as indebted as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for the power of God is salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, both to the barbarian and to the wise. Lord, may we take the gospel to all peoples. And as all peoples respond, may they be our brother and sister in Christ in the fullest sense of that word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.